This podcast is a product of the 4th and Inches Network. A podcast network designed to keep Husky fans up to date on their favorite programs around UW. Enjoy the show and go dogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. This week on the program, bracketologist Rocco Miller joins Trevor Mueller to talk about the landscape of college basketball with the added variables an extra year of eligibility and the fast and loose nature of the transfer portal. After Miller explains some of his thinking around how he creates his brackets, ranked nationally as one of the top 20 bracket makers, Miller explains who the favorites are to earn the top four number one seeds. After going over the top conferences in America, he explains Washington's predicament in their hopes of earning a coveted spot in the tournament. This is the 4th and Inches Network. Hey, Esky fans, this is Trevor Mueller with the 4th and Inches Network. With me is bracketologist Rocco Miller. Um, Rocco, you're uh, a bracketologist. You have your own website. You uh, have just I think we talked four years ago. You keep moving up the rankings as uh, with your recognition of how good you've been about predicting the bracket. Um, you're, uh, you're, you're, you'd call yourself the bracketeer. Um, Rocco, why don't you kind of introduce yourself to our, our, our listener base and kind of talk about your mission and your vision for, uh, for the bracketeer. Well, thanks Trevor. And it's great to be back on and great to catch up with you a little bit before we got started here today. Uh, you know, it, I can't really tell the whole story without starting from the beginning. I grew up in Seattle, um, you know, big Washington Husky guy growing up, still a football season ticket holder. Uh, I love the university with a passion. And um, when it comes to basketball, in the time frame I grew up, which was, you know, anywhere from the late 80s through all the 90s, um, it was such an awesome time to be a sports kid and teenager in the area. We, with the Kingdom, we had the Final Four. In 89, we had the final four in 95. We had the regional finals with the Fab Five in 93. And I think to this day, that might still be my favorite sporting event I've ever gone to. Uh, my dad and I got tickets last second, like fourth row from the court. Um, a lot of people don't remember that game because most people remember Chris Weber calling the timeout and blowing the 93 championship game. But that game was incredible too. It was te- a Cinderella Temple team uh, that had Rick Brunson and a lot of really good players, and they took the Fab Five team to overtime. Temple had plenty of chances to win that. Could have been Temple in the Final Four. Would have changed history. Right. Um, but th- but that I mean that experience um, and, and having the Final Fours around. You know, we'd always go to the Fan Fest and you know just be around the environment. And you know, my my dad would always quiz me on college basketball facts from as long as I can remember. Um, it was just such a great sport to follow from a national perspective. You know, most of those years, the Huskies weren't any good. We went through the Lynn, Lynn Nance years. Mm-hmm. Luckily, Bob Bender gave us a couple awesome memories. And then Lorenzo was incredible. I mean, just in terms of the history of Washington's program. But for the most part, most seasons, it's a national conversation. I have genuine interest in all the leagues from, from top to bottom. Um, and then in 1996, Joe Lenardi came on the scene at ESPN with his first quote unquote bracketology. Um, and that, that took a few years, I think, to catch on with, with a common fans and, um, and the sport in general. But by the two thousands, we all know it really took off, became a part of championship week, a part of, um, you know, before championship week on their broadcasts, you know, we all know it today as just like such a staple in the sport, but, uh, around that time, I, I actually, um, had a lot of different teams I would disagree with Joe on. And, and Joe and I know each other pretty well now. We talked the last few years, and he's been an awesome resource. But 
you know, for his job, he's got a tough job. He's got to throw stuff on the screen at all times. Is no real possible way to be thorough with that at certain points of uh, right. the craziness, if you will. Um, so in 09, I built my first Excel document to start tracking teams. I, I, you know, I was like, instead of just bickering about this <laughs> as a couch potato, I'm going to actually start documenting everything. Yeah. Um, and then in 2011, Twitter was introduced uh, to all of us, or maybe it was 2010, but I joined in 2011. Uh, that was the first time I put a tweet out with my forecast. Didn't have a website at the time. I had no idea about the bracket matrix. Uh, so the bracket matrix today is very well known in the college basketball world as a way to track hundreds of bracketologists to give the fans a lot of different options besides what ESPN and CBS tell you, which have always been the two most popular. Um, in 2015, uh, the website was built. I had met my wife and I give her all the credit or, or blame, I guess, <laughs> for the bracketeer name, but it's really stuck, I guess. So that's been cool. She actually does a lot of web design. So she built the site for us and um, it's just kind of evolved from there. And then in 2017, I really wanted to take, take it further. Bracketology is always going to be my niche, uh, but I'm so um, passionate about the entire sport. I've gotten heavily involved in off-season scheduling with the majority of the 358 programs. I work with a lot of the different um, tournaments you see in uh, Thanksgiving time period and help them get teams that make sense for them. Um, and so it's just kind of building and building and do it also covering live events as a USBWA member since now 2017. So it's been, it's been a heck of a ride. I'm really excited about where it's going. Yeah. And uh, I guess one of the things that I've used since we've talked is uh, the matrix of the quadrants that you uh, talk about often. And uh, I told you before the show, you're pretty much the only bracketologist that I follow and listen to and read on a regular basis. So can you kind of dive in a little bit to that? Uh, and then we'll kind of get into more of the landscape of, of this season. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to the quadrants, uh, it's been more of a recent thing, I guess we'll just say since 2019. So in 2019, it was a, it was a shift in the way that the selection committee looks at teams uh, because for as long as I can remember all the way through 2018, the RPI was the big thing. And right. even today, the, even today, the RPI is still important in things like softball, baseball, sure. a lot of, a lot of sports. And that's, you know, the, the, the foundation of the RPI is to reward teams for what they achieved. didn't matter if you won by 25 or by one, if you had a win, you got a win. If you had a loss, you had a loss. Well, with the net, it's a little different because there's so much uh, quality metrics now mixed in. And what, what are considered quality metrics are things like Ken Palm and BPI and Sagarin. Those are the ones actually on the team sheet nowadays. And the net itself has three of five components that are predictive. Uh, and, and that's also predictive and quality as we go through the interview today mean the same thing. Uh, it's really just to help forecast, you know, how that team's going to do down the road versus what they've actually achieved. So now we're in an era where you have a mix of what these forecasted models say, and then we still have two uh, resume based metrics, which are strength of record and KPI. Um, and so, so we have that to kind of ground the net a little bit. And then the quadrants themselves, I, I think most fans out there are probably familiar with them. Uh, you have your quad one, which is a top, uh, a, a top, you know, 30 home win, a top 50 neutral court win, a top 75 away win. And then, you know, just in the last couple of years, they've split that in half. So you have quad one, a 
and one B. So when I'm looking at the top of the bracket and I'm looking to seed the first four lines, like one seeds, two seeds, three seeds, four seeds, I'm looking at those one A wins. Cause I call those elite wins. I've also called them super wins in other years. Um, just whatever it takes to kind of get that message across. Cause I do think the committee looks at that as a, as a, a real piece of gold on your resume. So if you look today, you know, Alabama might not be a top four seed, but they have six of those. So if they finish even with a little bit of momentum, they're going to win a lot of little tiebreakers because they have those. I'll just start with quadrant two. Yeah. Quadrant two, quadrant two is effectively quadrant one doubled. So if you have a top 75 road win in quad one, anything between 76 and 150 now is quad two on the road on a neutral court. It's a top 50 that becomes a top 100 on the road for, uh, for, for quad two. So anything between 51 and hundred and, and all the way to the home games, which is anything between 26 and 50. Uh, whereas the top 25 would be in quad one. So, so the way the quadrants without getting into too many more weeds uh, work is you basically are saying uh, it's a lot harder to win on the road. It's pretty hard to win on a neutral court and you, you're expected to beat most teams at home, but if you beat a really good team at home, we'll still give you the credit for it. And I think it's a good system because you, you know, 20, 30 years of analysis went into uh, building that. And I actually know the person who, who proposed it uh, several years ago. Um, so, th- so that's a big part of your resume. There's more to it than that though. You're always looking at, you know, some other outliers. So what is your record away from home total? What is your record away from home uh, just in true road games? Like those are two different categories. You look at uh, just quadrant one, two games uh, as their own, cut out three and four. What's your record in those road games? So there's a lot of these different ways. I have an entire Excel document, as you know, Trevor, uh, that separates this out. And now I think the great um, change in in the process is, if you're looking at a bracket between seeds, let's say five, the five seed all the way down to probably the nine or 10 seed, they're banking on a lot of these uh, predictive metrics to seed those teams instead of actual earned resume merits in a lot of cases. And that's, you know, I, th- I think I only swung and missed on like four teams total last year and they were all in that range. So I kind of learned my lesson. And I think fans, if they, if they're reading my you know last few bracket forecast i do a deep uh, blog post every monday uh, for future reference on bracketsheer.org uh, but what you'll notice is that in those five to nine ranges i'm defaulting to a lot of the predictives uh, based on some of those those lessons i learned from last year's bracket now when the committee's looking at uh the quadrant wins let's say some one of those teams that's in the five to nine uh seed bracket uh do they have you noticed a trend where the committee will uh, maybe overlook like a quad two or a quad two B loss uh, as a, so team let's, let's go this way. Team a uh, we're looking at um, two quad one wins, but a couple of funny losses and what you'd call the two B or the, uh, or, or even a quad three loss um, as opposed to a team that took care of business against the, the quad twos and the quad threes, but uh, you know, maybe went winless in that quad a on the road. Uh, have you seen a, a trend for them to either go uh, team a or team B in that situation? Yeah, I think by default, the team a would actually uh, win out in that comparison, basically because there is some sort of proof in the pudding that they can go get the big win yeah. and, and team B uh, might've had limited opportunities for that, but they fell short 
and we don't know what they could do in some sort of imaginary scenario. So you go with what you, what you've seen now there's balance to all that, right? So you can't just, if team a had two big wins, but they had four bad losses, I feel like that starts to unbalance them and they should probably be closer to the bubble than the five to nine discussion. Uh, Just as a general rule of thumb, Uh, there's, and and there's a lot, um, like I said before, in the five to nine range specifically, uh, these, the Ken Palm ranking, the BPI, the Sagarin, you basically just take those three rankings and divide them by three. Sometimes they're really close to each other. Right now we're seeing some extreme things from the BPI, which is owned by ESPN uh, with the Mountain West conference specifically, where all these Mountain West teams that are having great years, they have terrible BPIs. Like I think Wyoming's still in the nineties. I think Boise State's in the seventies, Colorado State's in the seventies. Um, so there are some outliers from time to time. And that's where it's going to get interesting as this, as this predictive metrics era unfolds, we'll get more and more information. Like, will the committee actually look at that as an outlier or will they just straight up average it? And those teams will land closer to 10 seeds than sevens or eights. That's what we got to make sure, you know, we're, we're learning as we go. Uh, in general, though, if I'm a fan of those teams, I'd much rather be a 10 than an eight, nine. Everybody knows if you're in the eight, nine, your chances of getting to the second weekend are very, yeah. very slim, yeah. more slim than, than a seven or a 10. So, so yeah, it all, it's all very fascinating. Um, but I think the most important part of the process is making sure that the, the best 36 at large teams get selected. Yeah. And as you get close to the bubble, that's where you see, I roll up my sleeves and do quite a bit of work to make sure uh, we, that I'm getting that right. And your work is going to be hard. And I love this uh, sentence from your uh, uh, this week's, update that you did you said the extra covid year has made so many teams more productive and dangerous you combine that with the open mind open-ended transfer portal and you get teams like marquette providence who continue to turn heads and make high uh, headlines in the big east more and more surprises are still in front of us how do you how do yep. you look at this the the landscape of college basketball right now yeah so you know, we've covered the net era. So that, that kind of covers how these teams are ultimately going to get selected. The COVID year is a, is a huge point. I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, so typically before the season starts, I go through all 32 leagues, look at all rosters in each league. Um, you know, especially in these top 11 or 12 leagues where we're going to get the majority of that large selections from. And it, it just blew me away on how many fifth year seniors, sixth year seniors, there's even a few seventh year seniors still in college basketball. Right. Um, w- taking advantage of the extra COVID years, kind of the primary. We also saw some really excellent players enter the NBA draft last year and then last minute pull out and they're back in college basketball. Um, you know, Purdue obviously with, with Williams and there's tons of examples out there. And, and what I've noticed is that, you know, I try to get a, give every preseason roster some sort of, you know, grade like, okay, this team looks like a, you know, fringe NCAA tournament team. I'm going to keep them near my bubble. I'll do a deeper dive when I do my preseason bracket. I, I have the most fun with the preseason bracket because it's the only opportunity I get to put my own opinion into it. Everything you see once the season starts is, is based on data itself. And so the preseason exercise gives me a lot of ideas on, how the season's going to go. And so, you know, an average year for me doing that preseason exercise, I count about 35 to 40 teams that I, that I say surefire. This is, this should be an NCAA tournament team. I feel very confident about that. And I've got all my reasons to back those up this year. I had somewhere between 60 and 65, almost double the teams because of that experience factor. 
because coaches are getting better. I, like I look at coaches very closely um, and their track records. And, um, and, and so the, just the overall talent pool across all these rosters, even, even at places like, you know, North Texas, UAB, UAB got six power five guys to transfer down. Right. And, and I mean, UAB is a very deadly team. So um, th- th- this is a lot different than a normal year from that standpoint. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately I wrote this yesterday before, uh, before I watched all of the, the games go final. So I'm looking at my, my number one seeds right now that you have, uh, you had Auburn, Gonzaga, Purdue, and Kansas. Um, obviously Auburn went down yesterday. Um, what is the likelihood that you see those four teams finishing as the number one seeds? Well, I, you know, I think in general, there's, there's seven teams. If you look at my bracketology, big board that yeah. are right, right there for a one seed. And mm-hmm. really if any of the seven take a bad loss, uh, they'll get jumped most likely. Um, so that would, a bad loss would be like at home against a team that's not even forecasted in the tournament right? or, or maybe a, a way loss against a team at the bottom of their conference, something, something a little extreme like that. Um, but right now I think, let's just say team by team Gonzaga is certainly the safest. I mean, they right. dominate their league every year. There's really no indication of them slowing down in WCC play. Now they still have to play St. Mary's twice in the regular season. The first one will be this Saturday in Spokane. They'll come down here to St. Mary's at the end of the season. And then you figure if, if they both get to the final, they could meet a third time. So we got to see how that matchup plays out. But in general, Gonzaga's two losses um, have only occurred because both Duke and Alabama were able to um, to frustrate and uh, slow down a little bit that fast break game that gets the ball down in the post to Timmy. And, uh, and it's just so explosive against most teams. Like I watched – Santa Clara's got an incredible offense down here. Second best offense in the WCC. Gonzaga started the game, I think, up like 30 to six against them because defensively they just had nobody to stop it. Most rosters don't. Right. St. Mary's is a very St. Mary's is a very uh, complex defensive unit behind Randy Bennett. They've always been that way. Every once in a while, they'll surprise you and hang with Gonzaga. So I'm curious to see how that goes. But but barring any of that, Gonzaga is as safe as they as it gets. Auburn and Purdue play in brutal leagues. So, you know, you could see a week where they both lose twice in a week. Right. Um, and that would really shake things up. Arizona is built like Gonzaga. They're basically Gonzaga South with Tommy Lloyd. Right. Uh, you know, it's going to be very difficult for, a, for an average uh, Pac-12 team to beat them, but uh, you know we'll see how it goes. Oregon's uh, once again getting stronger as we get towards March. It'll be interesting when they meet up. I'll actually be down there next week to see uh, to see that matchup. Uh, and then I think you know uh, uh, Kansas is my fourth number one. Of course, they're in the toughest league, the Big Twelve. Right. They could get knocked off almost any given night with with the uh, matchups they have. So. So yeah, none of these are really that solid except for Gonzaga is my final answer to that. Yeah. And a couple of other ones that you mentioned in your top seed, uh, at least your summary for this week is um, Marquette and Providence and, and two of those, you know, non they're, they're not mid majors per se They're uh, but do you see somebody like them being able to in a tough, a really good basketball conference, uh, getting through it clean and being in those top two seeds. It's p- potentially possible. Um, you know, 
the big east in basketball it is a power we, we call it a power six in basketball For sure. I, they're extremely well funded i mean look all their games are on fox fs1 i mean they have a, you could argue they have a better tv deal than the than the pac-12 or the acc yeah. um so they got money flowing and they got great players right uh and obviously out of that league villanova's got probably the most talent if they finish strong like they do a lot of seasons uh they certainly are right there to get a two the problem uh, providence's resume is impeccable uh they're a 20 and two ball club 10 and one in the big east their two losses uh interestingly were both blowouts uh they got destroyed by virginia who is a fringe bubble team right. and, and that's really hurting providence's metrics um and, and they also got blown out in their other loss uh, as well so um that's the weird part about providence so i think they've earned the right to be what we call a protected seed which is those first four seeds the reason they're called protected just for the audience's sake is uh, that means in their first round matchup of the NCAA tournament, they cannot play a team that's from that area. So if you, so if you send uh, Providence to Buffalo, they're not going to have to play against Buffalo. They'll play against a team that's from, I think it's something like over a hundred miles away. So they're not at a disadvantage in their first game. Uh, five, sixes, sevens, eights, et cetera, do not have that protection, just right. the top four. So it's a pretty big deal to get in that. And CBS every year does a bracket reveal show that's coming up on February 19th where they just show you those first four seed lines. Um, I think Providence is deserving of that. Now for them to get up to a top uh, two seed, it is possible, but they're going to need wins over Villanova. Uh, obviously Marquette's having a great year. They'll, uh, they beat them at home. Can they beat them on the road when they play there later? Those are the, uh, the ways that that will happen. Um, outside of that league though, the big East, the only other team that's got a shot at the two seed line is Houston. Houston, a uh, dominant team out of the AAC Final Four team last year. Uh, the problem is, is there's not really a second AAC team right now that's even forecasted to make the field. Houston plays SMU on Wednesday night this week. Uh, we'll see if SMU can give them a battle. That that might be enough to get SMU into the into the first four in or somewhere close to that if they can get the win. But otherwise, Houston's just destroying everybody, and their metrics say they're second best team in the net. If you're second best team in the net on Selection Sunday, it's going to be hard to not give them a top two seed. And last year they did get a two seed. Um, I guess before we get to some of the other conference stuff, I see down here that you have your first four out as of right now are Oklahoma, Florida, uh, UAB, and St. Louis. Uh, your your um, your next teams out are West Virginia, Stanford, Dayton, Mississippi, and uh, I, the one that sticks out to me obviously is going to be Stanford, and uh, they avenged their uh, what is Washington right now uh, Q, uh, uh, quadrant three loss, but since it's on the road, maybe it's a quadrant two. Am I am I just putting my homer glasses on here? That's that's funny. Uh, we have a little joke about that between me and some Seattle friends. Uh, it, it was Q, quadrant two for like a couple days. After Stanford destroyed Washington on uh, Sunday, yeah, it went it went back to quadrant three because um, they need to be the Huskies need to be in the top one thirty five. I think they just fell out uh, by by a smidge. At the end of the day, um, you know, if you're if you're a bubble team, uh, and this is I think important for the conversation, uh, the difference between a quad two and a quad three really isn't the end of the world. Um, what I'm looking at for those last couple spots is how did you do against teams that are actually in the projected field? So I'm basically throwing out rankings in that, in that moment. I, you know, it's a, it's a manual visual process probably takes me an hour longer than most bracketologists out there, but I think it's totally worth it to have that data available. 
uh, for the update. And Stanford right now, this is actually where they're winning out against a lot of bubble teams. They actually have four wins against the projected field, which is very, very healthy for this time of year. Uh, they've beaten USC twice. They got the Wyoming win out in Hawaii, and they got a win over Oregon. So with those four pieces of gold or silver, maybe we'll call those silver, um, they are still relevant, even though uh, missed opportunity last night with UCLA coming to town. Uh, they get a couple more chances later this year and they take care of business against the bottom half of the Pac-12, really going to be what it comes down to. Uh, they might win out on some of these comparisons and, and sneak their way in. Uh, one of the other big challenges Stanford has today is uh, that predictive metric and the net ranking is really, really out of whack. Uh, you know, As of Monday, they were 89th. You know, they took a loss last night. I'm assuming they're somewhere still in that neighborhood. Maybe they dropped back into the 90s. They've been teetering that you know, 89, 90 spot for a couple of weeks now. And quite honestly, we don't know enough about the net since it's only since 2019. Uh, I think the first year of the bracket, there was one team, uh, St. John's that was 73rd. And I don't think we had anything that extreme last year. So, so to me, 73rd is kind of our initial line in the sand on, okay, you probably don't want to go too much lower than 73rd to take one of these last teams, regardless of all the other factors it can become an outlier and a de facto disqualifier. Um, so I do think in Stanford's best interest, they need to play their way up to at least a, a top 75 or higher level uh, and then just continue to, to beat up on the bottom half of the league. Um, and, and they might be right there if that happens. Uh, looking at the power six, um, how would you rank the conferences right now? Yeah. So right now, I, I mean, I, I kind of default to the Ken Palm conference rankings because his data is so, so mature. Uh, really, the, I don't think there's any debate that the Big 12 is the best. Um, I mean, even the bottom of that league is, is really strong. Oklahoma State's on probation. Kansas State's a team that was written off maybe a month ago. Now they're starting to knock teams off. They just knocked off Texas Tech, who's a top 10 team. Um, so really, really dangerous league. Obviously, the SEC is uh, very top heavy with some very loaded rosters between Tennessee, LSU, Kentucky and Auburn at the very top and, uh, and a nice middle with, you know, you got teams like Florida who's on the bubble. Right. Um, there's just a lot of great teams in the SEC. Then I go big 10 third uh, big 10, of course, has been a power in basketball the last couple of years. I think this year, maybe only eight or so solid bona fide tournament teams versus 10. But still, I mean, that's very strong. Right. Uh, the, the Big East, we've talked about a lot already. They're fourth. Uh, I would include them again as a power conference. And then Pac-12 and ACC are basically grading out equal, but I would definitely give the nod to the Pac-12 because between UCLA and Arizona, very, very much national championship contenders. ACC really only has Duke and then just a ton of like mushy bubble teams. Uh, at least the Pac-12 has two heavyweights, and USC is a, a clear tournament team. So, and and Oregon keeps playing better. So, so I think that definitely helps the Pac-12 in terms of uh, comparing them to the ACC. And you've kind of already talked about the WCC and and how Gonzaga probably still has a stranglehold on that conference. It's, uh, you know, St. Mary's in the top 25 right now, but uh, from what you've said earlier, it doesn't sound like uh, they're going to be able to to you know, steal a championship there unless they do it in the tournament. Um, what are, what's the landscape of the mid majors this year? 
Yeah. I mean, the mid major races are awesome. I mean, if you count mountain West, everybody's got a different definition of mid major. Uh, I look at it as 10 top 10 leagues. And then you've got the other 22, uh, but you could also say power six and the other 26. So mountain West is very strong. They're on pace right now to get four teams in the tournament. There's also a strong other three that are capable of beating those top four, uh, between Utah state, Fresno state and UNLV. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the league, that's, that's a great example of the COVID year, uh, just really helping those teams. A lot of experience in that league. Nevada was a team picked uh, by many to win the league and they're having a miserable year uh, really just shows how deep the league is. Uh, you know, I think the best of, of the, of the bunch is Murray state out of the OVC. Murray state is a team that went out and crushed Belmont on the road. Everybody loved Belmont after Belmont had won at teams like St. Louis uh, they knocked off Iona in their tournament and uh, Murray state, you know, th- they have a couple very, very talented players and Tevin Brown and KJ Williams. Uh, they, I mean, very, very fun team to watch. And they basically perform like a high major. Uh, so I think they're the cream of the class. Belmont's right there. They were my last team in the field on Monday. Um, you know, their whole key is just don't lose to anybody bad. They might sneak in. It happened in 2019. They were in the first four in 2019. Not a team somebody wants to match up with either. Uh, North Texas, where Hamir Wright landed, uh, not getting a lot of minutes there, but they're extremely well coached. Uh, another team with just a ton of veterans, some Juco guys, uh, tough as nails, play the best defense in Conference USA by a mile, and that always keeps them in, in the hunt. And this year they're just winning like crazy. I think they just won their 10th in a row. Uh, Iona with Rick Pitino, they've already knocked off Alabama. I talked about UAB. I would also just throw in, uh, those are certainly the, the top teams in my view, uh, but I'd also throw in New Mexico State, Toledo, Chattanooga, um, as, as maybe teams more from smaller conferences. Now, I'm not including the A-10, who has Davidson having a great year. Right. I'm not including the American, who we talked about, Houston, and, um, and, and or the Mountain West, but, but those are all teams to keep in mind. How about a, uh, a Catholic school that uh, the – uh, uh, maybe a, a somebody who lightly follows college basketball might not know about yet. A Catholic school? Yeah. <laughs> Does Jesuit count? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I I, I got to stick up for my guys down here in Santa Clara. I mean, I am blown away watching them. I've I've covered them live about three or four times. I'll be covering their game against San Francisco uh, on 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 Saturday. And maybe I'll just mention them both because they're both Jesuit. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's so fun to watch this offense. Uh, Jalen Williams is going to be in the NBA. There's no doubt about it. Yosef Vrakic has had an incredible five-year career at Santa Clara and just one of the most brilliant European style, big man passers that hits threes plays on the perimeter. Uh, you know, PJ pipes came in from the transfer portal. When he gets hot, he's really hard to slow down. Parker uh, Braun has, um, you know, he's a streaky guy too. And, you know, their last, I think last six or seven games in a row, they've shot over 50% from the field in every game. Um, and that's against good competition. They beat St. Mary's last night. Um, you know, they're starting to s- sneak into the bubble talk. Unfortunately, uh, you know, a few of those guys were hurt in December or had COVID and that's been a big part of their story. Um, but definitely keep an eye on Santa Clara because they'll get another crack at BYU. They've got the San Francisco game this week. And as for San Francisco, the Dons, 
Uh, I think most fans are probably more familiar with them. They've been projected in the tournament, I think, all year long. Todd Golden, one of the youngest coaches here in, in the United States, is a great guy. Get to, got to know him well over the last few years. He's done an incredible job building an experienced team. I think the best thing he did in the offseason was bring in Johan Masalski from University of San Diego, who's also in the WCC. Got him to buy into how good this team would be this year and come you know, join the dark side and play for the Dons. And uh, now he's averaging a double-double. He's going to be all WCC. It's been a huge difference maker because last year, San Francisco had the talent, but they didn't have the, the size. They're playing a lot of four-guard lineups. Now with the addition of Masalski, they brought in Patrick Tape, a center from Duke. Uh, Josh Coonan's still around. Uh, you got two deep at every position on the San Francisco team. Uh, everything's been going swimmingly pretty well all year. And then last night, a loss at home to Portland uh, has really thrown a wrench in the resume. So, you know, we'll see where they land on Friday. They might, they might be all the way down to the first four. We'll see how that shakes out, but, but man, it's been exciting. And I, and I really hope they find a way in just personally, because they have, they made it in 1998 as a WCC tournament champion kind of came out of nowhere that year. Uh, but besides that, they haven't had an at large worthy team since the 1970s. And, um, you know, we've seen what Loyola Chicago has done for the city of Chicago, right. making the final four sweet 16 last year. They're like a bona fide program. They're on their way to the Atlantic. They're on their way to the Atlantic 10 next year. I really think if San Francisco has that type of success in one or two tournaments, that exact same formula would work here. You have a lot of people moving here to, uh, you know, take really good jobs in the city. A lot of 20 somethings looking for fun things to do. And if they can keep putting a winning product on the, on the floor, like Loyola Chicago does, um, I think we have the same formula uh, brewing over here in San Francisco. Yeah. That's uh, that's kind of what sparked the question is uh, you go back every year and there's, there's at least uh, one team and I can't remember who it was a few years ago, but the guy was, they were going up against a, a really highly seated Wichita state team. And he didn't even know where Wichita was. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember if you know who that was, um, but uh, kind of moving. I mean, this is a Washington podcast. We're going to kind of end here in the pack 12 um, right now. You have UCLA, uh, Arizona as a two UCLA as a three SC as a seven uh, Oregon as an 11. Do you see anybody else uh, making a push? Do you see a, fa- a fifth or a sixth team out of the conference? Yeah, so we co- we also covered Stanford. Stanford quite a yeah. Bit. yeah, so I think, you know, you, you know my thoughts there. They got a real shot to get there. I, I think the only other team we can really talk about is the uh, the rival Cougars from uh, Pullman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now, there's absolutely no way they could be selected. I know Joe Lenardi's got them first four out. And uh, their metrics are crazy good. Uh, 30th in, in Kempom this morning. I think they're 37th in the net right now. Uh, a lot of these predictives have them in the 30s. And I think when people eyeball that uh, on the surface, it's like, hey, you're top, you're top 40, you should be in. Because uh, you usually take the top 45, 47 or so. Um, uh, but the reality is Wazoo in every, in every opportunity uh, for an important win has fallen short. They also had two games in Spokane uh, against Boise State and South Dakota State. Two pretty good teams. Boise State's certainly a tournament team themselves, uh, but they, they couldn't win those. Uh, they had New Mexico State come in and beat them in Pullman. So uh, as it stands today, there's no way you can select them. However, tomorrow night, Arizona goes to Pullman. Monday night, Wazoo goes to Eugene. A week from uh, Thursday, Wazoo goes to UCLA. 
and a week from Saturday, Wazoo goes to USC. So those are four. Those are the four tournament teams from the Pac-12. Right. Even if they go two and two in those games, I, I mean, they their entire picture changes. So uh, Washington State season in the next 10 days is going to be decided if, if they go two and two, uh, maybe go one and three, they're kind of, you know, still trying to scratch the surface, scratch their way in. Uh, they'll have to be pretty flawless in a one and three scenario there. And um, yeah, yeah, but you know, there's so much opportunity there. They also end the season at home against Oregon, the last game. Um, plus you have the PAC 12 tournament, which might provide an opportunity or two. Uh, but for the most part, the, the whole season is going to be spoken for, in the next 10 days. Um, and then lastly, I'll mention Colorado. You know, there was a little bit of uh, hope for Colorado when they got their win at Eugene, but they followed that up with getting beat by the dogs. Uh, then they got killed by Wazoo after that. And, um, you know, at this point, their remaining, they've already played their big games. So their remaining schedule only has, I think, a home Arizona game out of all the tournament teams. And uh, that's just not enough opportunity uh, to make up for the gap that they have. Yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, Washington before their loss, uh, at Stanford there, they, they beat Cal and you're looking at Washington at this, you know, the second, their second in the conference when it comes to their win losses, uh, at seven and three. And, but if you dig a little deeper, their wins are against Utah two again, uh, two against Utah, Oregon state two against Cal one against Colorado and probably their best league win so far has been Stanford. Um, was the, the non-conference losses enough to pretty much write Washington off uh, before the conference? I mean, barring some big wins against, you know, UCLA at the top four teams, were they pretty much buried before the season started, the conference season started? For the most part, sadly, sad, yeah. sad to say it out loud because, you know, mm -hmm. we always want the best for the homeschool. But, right. but, but uh, yeah, the, I mean, the bottom line is Northern Illinois is a team in the 300s. Right. Uh, Winthrop's a team close to 200. I lost both those games at home. You throw in a Utah Valley loss. Right. Um, not, not great. And, and sadly, you know, at the time we didn't think a big deal of losing to Nevada, but they've completely fallen apart. They're now, around 150 or so. So, right. so, so it's a lot of bad. Now, like I said before, in your, in your five to nine seed comparison question, um, a lot of good can, can start to balance out with a lot of bad. So if, for any crazy reason, you ever want to say it's impossible when the games haven't happened yet. Right. Uh, Huskies basically have the exact same chances the Cougars have since they played the same schedule, just, you know, opposite. Right. Um, if, so, if, if for some reason the Huskies are able to beat UCLA both times, uh, beat Arizona at home, I guess anything can happen at home, right? Uh, and then, you know, win at USC, win, beat Oregon. Like if all those things happen, you hit like a five, six-way parlay, uh, you know, you know let, get me back on the show and let's talk again. <laughs> right. but, uh, but otherwise, otherwise, yeah, the fate's already been determined. It's pretty much going to come down to Vegas. You know, can they make right. a run? Uh, to the finals. Um, but you know, I, I'm a little, um, I'm a little discouraged from what I was at the game on Sunday here at Stanford and mm -hmm. maybe that was a bad game to be at, but it, it really didn't look like a team that was capable of any of that. Well, even watching them, even the Cal win was great, but what you saw was a lot of one-on-one -on -one basketball and the guys right. outside of, uh, uh, Terrell Brown were making shots. And uh, when that happens, they're, they're pretty deep. They're a pretty decent ball club, but Absolutely. if you go cold, you've seen what happens. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it, it, it's been fun to watch the Huskies in those wins. Yeah. You know, Cal, Cal's pretty deprived now. You know, right. Andre Kelly, one of their best players, went down right before that game, and mm-hmm. he's done for the year. Um, so the pecking order is good. I mean, the Huskies are, should stay probably in the top eight for the pecking order. U- Utah's pretty buried. They might get better, but, you know, Oregon State and Cal are very much buried. And uh, so, so there's a lot to build on. Uh, obviously we'll have a very interesting off season ahead once we get there, but I am enjoying um, Terrell Brown's success. I think he's played himself uh, into being a pro player. No question. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I, I just want the best for the program. So hopefully get a few more great days like they've had here recently. Now you mentioned that you track a lot of uh, coaching uh, metrics, uh, things like that. Where do you see, um, uh, Mike Hopkins uh, trending. It it almost felt like some of those good those good buzz was coming back his way, and uh, a couple of really disappointing losses I think have hurt some of that. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think ultimately when you're the head coach at the University of Washington, especially replacing Lorenzo Romar, who went to six NCAA tournaments, right. three Sweet Sixteens. Uh, the bar's a little higher than it's ever been, especially in today's day mm-hmm. and age with uh, the way fans and, 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 you know, boosters and everything are. Um, and that early success was amazing. Two straight coach of the year awards. Uh, as a person, I love hop. We get a chance yeah. every year at PAC 12 media day to spend uh, about 15 minutes together and, and, and catch up. And um, you know, I want nothing but the best, but you know, I, I think there definitely is, uh, grounds to, to move on based on what we've seen the last few years. I know it hasn't been always fair. They've had a couple COVID pauses, uh, obviously, um, you know, really close this year to building a Supreme roster. Yeah, they were really close to landing Bryson Williams. Who's k- killing it for Texas tech, uh, very close to landing Tari Eason from Seattle. Who's uh, going to be a first round NBA pick and is probably all sec for LSU. You know, if you get one or either of those guys it could be a whole different story, um, so I get it. The talent is very big part of the equation, but I think um, perhaps Hopkins and, and, you know, moving away from the two, three zone, maybe a little prematurely as that was a really great staple with Thibel and, and Jalen Noel and that right. team uh, might, might've been part of the downfall. Um, but again, I, I don't want to rule it, him staying out either. You know, last year they kept him around due to, I think some buyout concerns yep. or a large ta- price tag there. And I also think, um, it's very rare to see a school get rid of a football and basketball coach in the same school year. Uh, I was actually trying to find another example of it in the power five, uh, era of, you know, the last 15, 20 years. And I, I don't think I've been able to find one. So yeah, we might, we might see hop again next year. And this is a huge, as much as people are talking about the transfer portal in football, <laughs> the basketball, the basketball world's already had it for an right. extra couple of years. Uh, you could turn this thing around big time in a, in a summer. So, uh, you know, the book's definitely not, not closed here. I, I agree with you. And I think that some of the stuff that Noah Dickerson has talked about with us is that, um, the, the zone, the attacking, the, the, um, aggressiveness of the trapping, uh, has really helped Washington where last year, yes. I don't know if the, uh, the, the personnel necessarily lined up with the kind of two, three style that he wants to run. They were really small up front, uh, two guards that were six foot and six, two, like that's not gonna, 
that's not going to work when you're, when you got to be long and, and, and take up a lot of space. Right. So uh, I definitely think it's going, it's definitely trending in the right direction. I think that it is going to be a really interesting choice for Jen Cohen and the rest of the powers that be at Washington to um, determine whether they want to see if this is uh, an upward trajectory or if it's just kind of, he got the, uh, a better group of guys to that fit a system. I'm not sure. Um, but to finish up, you have your top four seeds right now. Let's, let's take it to the top seven that you've talked about. Um, looking at the national championship, would you bet the seven or would you take the field? Well, if you're going to include all seven, I'd probably smarter to take the seven. Okay. Uh, because, uh, you know, if it was top four, then I might, you know, I'd have access to teams like Arizona and Kentucky who sure. are, very capable of winning it if we just look at the seven and again for the audience the seven would be gonzaga auburn purdue kansas kentucky arizona and baylor uh versus the field i think i like that more now on the field side of things you would still have a team like ucla or texas or maybe even tennessee who has or alabama who i think has a lot of upside tons of talent their metrics represent that um but you're much better served by taking those seven right (laughs) Rocco, uh, you are an encyclopedia. Uh, I really appreciate having you on. You teach me a lot. Um, every, you know, both times you've been on, I've just, I feel like I know so much more, not just about the PAC 12 Washington, but really the landscape of college basketball. Um, it's, it's, it's really awesome to have that and then watch the second half of the season as, um, tournaments start to come and then, uh, really dig into, uh, you know, the office pools. So, um, appreciate having you on, uh, where can people find your work? Yeah. Thanks for the kind words, Trevor. I appreciate that. It's great to be back on and, uh, tap, tap in with the Seattle fan base. I miss everybody at back home. Uh, you can find my work mainly on Twitter at Rocco Miller and the number eight, uh, do a ton of, uh, uh, announcements there and, and basically covering as much as I can across all 32 conferences. Uh, my website is bracketeer.org and that's where every Monday and Friday you'll get bracket updates till the end of February. As we start March, uh, you know, this year's selection Sundays on March 13th, you'll probably see a new bracket almost every day of that month because by then we're getting into the first week of championship week already. Uh, so it's all going to hit us very quickly here. A couple other announcements, uh, you know, the field of 68 has become a popular platform. I've been appearing on uh, both their mid-major shows, which comes out on Tuesdays and uh, just, just on a rotating panel. And same with their Bracketology show, which we just started last week. Uh, the first two episodes, I was on both of those. Those are every Monday and Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific, uh, and they air live. So a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying getting to work with three of the other uh, best bracketologists that the Internet's seen in the last 10 years. So, um a lot of great information on those platforms. 